The Barna Group did a survey and discovered in recent years that less than 1% of young adults have a biblical worldview. This is amongst Christians in America in general. But they also discovered that less than one half of 1% of Christians between the ages of 18 and 23, which is the group that we work with, have a biblical worldview. They haven't come to a place to understand that their life is based on God's word and a, a view of the world from God's perspective, from God's truth. We'll go to the next one. Well, now I gotta go back. Nearly 75% of Christian young people leave the church after high school. It's a sad statistic. And the final thing that they discovered was 52, in between 52 and 63% of freshman believers after four years in a secular college completely reject their faith. So this is why we are on the college campus to help reach students with the gospel of Christ. These students are bombarded by professors that have an agenda. One of those professors recently said, when we, when we American college teachers encounter Christians, we do our best to convince these students of the benefit of secularization. Rather, I think those students are lucky to find themselves under the benevolent teaching of people like me and, have, and to have escaped the grip of their frightening, vicious, dangerous parents. And this is the mindset of our secular teachers on our college campuses today. Our children are being bombarded. If they choose to go to a secular university, they are bombarded. So what are we doing? Our desire is to be on the campus where these students are being taught to not believe in absolutes. They're being taught that there is no God. In fact, their God is being made fun of in the classroom, not just one, not just science classrooms, but every classroom, because those teachers hate God. They hate the existence or the thought of God. Um, they're willing to blame the parents that their children even have a belief in some mystic God that they've never seen. And so this is what God has called us to do, to work on the college campus where young people, there are believers and they're of all walks of life, but there are many unbelievers. And this is one of our Bible studies that we held recently on the campus. And uh, the next picture, maybe we can go to the next picture. Yes, and then we, we do other things with our students. We gone hiking with them. We've done frisbee golf. We try and involve them in our activities of life, but we are reaching these students with the gospel of Christ. But what is their, what is their challenge? The challenge that these students are facing today is an intellectual challenge. You can go on to the next one, Pastor. Naturalism, or in other words, you could say anti-supernaturalism, is defined by philosophers that reality is exhausted by nature containing nothing supernatural, and that scientific methods should be used to investigate all areas of reality, including the human spirit. 
So basically they take out anything that would have to do with God or a Holy Spirit or Christ himself, and everything must be defined by nature. Therefore, they call themselves naturalist or naturalism. And anything that would be supernatural as the word of God or God himself is something to not be believed in. And so the, the approach of this intellectual challenge that is happening on the, on the college campuses today is actually the first approach is banishment. Whether or not God exists or angels, fairies, pixies, goblins, or the boogeyman is irrelevant to scientific investigation. Hold to your religious or superstitious beliefs if you want to, but don't bring them up in the classroom. It is off the subject. We don't have time for theological debates. And that's what college-age students are receiving today. There is no challenge to be possibly there is faith in, in a God that exists. There is no um, willingness to be tolerant of both sides of, of the, what could be truth. There is an agenda that only teaches one thing, and the agenda is also to teach against any existence of God. So the banishment approach is one, and what does that approach really exist, or what does it have within that idea. They basically are saying that a science professor will state at the beginning of the semester, science involves the gathering of analysis of data as the basis for forming hypothesis regarding nature of reality. It must therefore exclude any reference to the supernatural as out of bounds for scientific inquiry. Basic idea, you can't bring anything into the science world that cannot be proven. So students instantly get the idea, and believing students, they get the idea that it is anti-intellectual to share one's faith, so they have to compartmentalize it. They're not allowed for that to spill over into any of their classroom settings, into any of their lectures, into any of their papers, the response is basically a complete cutoff. And this is the banishment approach that most secular colleges are using today to cut out any type of Christianity. The next approach will basically, our, re, our response to that, you can go back a couple, I think we've gone a little bit too far. So the idea here is we believe that Christians should not accept this approach. So how do students that are between the ages of 18 and 23, where very few of them have ever designed or had a biblical worldview that they believe in, how are they going to defend that when they get to college? How are they going to be able to stand up against anyone that has a belief system that is opposite of theirs? So our approach is we have been made we have Christ as our life. The Bible says in Philippians, for me to live is Christ. Colossians says, when Christ, who is our life. So our desire is to encourage believers to realize that they live for Christ. He is their life. And not only that, he is Lord of their life. 
It extends to everything that they do, even on this secular campus, even in the secular classes that they're learning. The Bible says in Colossians, for by him are all things created. And then it also says that in all things, he might have the preeminence. So we want to teach these college students that they can truly live for Christ in a very secular, difficult setting, an environment that they're living in. Much of their life is going to be decided during these four years. And they are actually ready to be taught something new. They have opened their minds up to whatever they're going to be learning from these professors. And it is our desire to help the believers to be grounded in biblical truth so that they can stand up for Christ. The confrontation approach has also been one that has taken place on the campus. The banishment, just don't allow for it. And then there's the confrontational approach. It's a popular idea in the classroom to attack God, the Bible, believers, and they do that in various forms. They use illogical arguments to make fun of, to cause a believer to not be able to give an answer. So they use these arguments, and these arguments are kind of like this. They may employ an ad hominem argument, associating belief in a creator-sustainer with witch-hunting skinheads, the Ku Klux Klan. Or they may use an absurd argument, such as asking how many dinosaur couples went into the ark, or how Noah could be sure that both male and female mosquitoes made it in. And this is the way, the approach that they're using, and things like this to cause the believer to feel intimidated about their beliefs. So therefore, that student begins to think, I have no intellectual argument to come back to any professor or any other belief system that is out there. And I, I believe that that is another reason why we need to be there. We're not there to create sarcasm. We're not there to give them a, a, a quick response to be sarcastic back to their teacher. We're there so that we can teach them God's truth, that they are founded and grounded on that truth, and that truth will be a light to those that they live near, and that they will be able to see that example of those, those students. What is the re results of this naturalism? Well, first of all, truth becomes relative. And secondly, what happens is that faith is challenged. That's the greatest point that where students begin to lose their identity in Christ because their faith is being challenged. And then last of all, because truth is relative, morality becomes relative. There are no boundaries. There is nothing that holds back that is held back on the campus. So the very next slide gives you an idea. These are some of the topics that come up, like this one has been brought up at the university that we work at, how diversity and inclusion can promote a better, safer college experience for all. And they would say that those that believe in God, in Christ, are restrictive, so therefore students don't feel safe because you believe in a God that that wouldn't allow for or be diverse or inclusive. And so here are the things that they're facing. If you look on the right-hand side of that, 
You'll see one of the advertisements that it was on the campus just recently at uh, Furman University. Queer histories and narrative lecture series. Multiple different people talking about relationships between father and son, the sexuality in, in history, um, multiple things of other worlds in Africa and children that are, that are homosexuals and queers. These are the things that they're being bombarded with on the campuses today. And it is our desire to help them. So what are some of the things that we do? Well, the next slide shows that we attend basketball games. And when we're at the basketball game, we're not going rah-rah. We're walking about meeting students, introducing ourselves, finding out who they are. Um, during the break time, we're out in the hallways, getting ourselves familiar. Last year, we bought season tickets to the soccer game. Not too many people go anyway, but we bought season tickets. And our goal is to sit amongst the students, to make ourselves familiar, to become friends, to let them know that we're there. And it's interesting, in the Sunday school class this morning, one of the men asked, what is the reception of the students? And you know, it's interesting. They're friendly, they're kind. Very seldom are we rejected or made fun of. And so we found an open arm and an open heart, an open ear to what we offer. Some students will look at us. I had a big, huge football player look at me one day and I started talking to him and he said, oh man, I've been away from Sunday school so long in my life, I gotta get back to church. And I said, well, why don't you come to our Bible study? We'd love to have you there. Now, this has been what God has allowed for over the last two years where we've been able to reach some of these students with, with the gospel. I'd like to share a little bit more personally. The next slide shows my son, Andrew, and I. This fella, he works at Furman University. Uh, he's a full-time employee there. And we've been having a Bible study with him for the last four to five months. Uh, we meet about every two weeks and we study God's word. He actually became a believer just two years ago. He was a student and uh, he accepted Christ because of the influence of some other students that were sharing Christ with him. And he became a believer, but he had never been discipled. He had never really grown in his faith. And so Andrew and I have been doing this Bible study with this, this fellow. He's about 27 years of age and uh, just really in, been enjoying studying the Word of God. How do Christians get involved? The next slide asks that question. You know, we can have a couple different approaches. We can, we can look and say, you know, we really, we really don't want to offend people. We want to be cautious about creating waves and, and, and being too out there. And I, I think that turns into sometimes the silent approach that our life is the testimony, which I believe is important. We're gonna talk about that in scripture this morning. But I believe that, that God would have us to be courageous, courageous in our approach to people that need Christ, courageous in being able to share with them. Sometimes you have to be creative. Sometimes you have to be, be willing to go out of the box to be able to share your belief in Christ, which means you go play ping pong at the ping pong tables where they're set up at Furman. And I'll play ping pong with some guys and, and some girls come by and there's a pool table there. And before long, they say, are you, are you a teacher? No. Well, are, are you a student? And I think, wow, that'd be pretty amazing at this age to be a student right now. They said, well, no, well, what do you do here? Well, I'm glad you ask. <laughs> and um, it, that actually happened just uh, about eight to nine weeks ago. I was playing ping pong with a fellow by the name of Liam. He's from Philadelphia. And uh, 
we got to play and finished the game and we were talking. He said, so what do you do? And I said, well, we hold a Bible study. We'd love for you to come. We just, we talk about God's word. We have a very specific study that we use online. And I believe that you would benefit from it. He said, well, I'm Catholic. And he said, yeah. He said, I think I would like that. Well, I saw his friends leaving. And I said, hey, I don't want to hold you up. Looks like your friends are taking off. And he said, no, no, no. He said, I want to talk to you. And I said, well, great. I said, let's talk. So we spent about 30 minutes. And he said to me, he said, I am a biogenetics major. He said, I, I am desirous of studying why people choose the things in life, the ways, the choices they make, the, the areas that they choose to be. And he said, because I come from a Catholic background, he said, I believe my church would probably not agree with some of the things that I would like to do in genetics. And he said, so I'm going to come to your Bible study so I can find out if morally I am doing the right thing by wanting to mess with genetics. And I said, well, Liam, that's a good reason to come to our Bible study. I believe that you'll be able to discover some things about God while we're there. Hasn't missed a week since we started. He's been there every week. He's learning. He's a non-believer, but he does believe the Bible is true. He does believe that God's word is true. And he, and he wants to find out whether God would approve of some of the things he's thinking of. So you pray for Liam. You pray that God will work in his life, that he will come to a saving knowledge of Christ. But I do believe that just as we need to be courageous in our approach, as well as creative, I would encourage you to be courageous and creative. I would encourage you to find ways to reach the lost people around you. Our world is full of secularism, materialism, naturalism. They're bombarded from every media source that there is no God. And if you believe in a God, you must also be those type that believe in the Ku Klux Klan and goblins and everything else. And that's who we're categorized with by the world standard. So we have to be creative, we have to be courageous in our approach to help people understand the truth of God's word. The next slide just shows some of the people that we've been working with, my family. Um, we, we try and bring students to church. This next slide is a young man who is from Honduras. His name is Christian. Um, I was able to do multiple Bible studies with Christian. He is now back in his country. He graduated from college. And um, you can pray that God would work in his life. The next slide is of a young man who is from Jamaica. His name is Tarek. And um, my daughter and I have been doing, we first started off teaching him how to speak Portuguese. His grandfather was from Portugal, great-grandfather, and he wanted to learn Portuguese. And so my daughter and I would weekly meet with him at McDonald's, and we would, he asked me at the beginning, he said, so what are we going to study to learn Portuguese? And I said, well, I have this book, and it's called John. And I said, I'll bring it, and we'll study that. And so I got there the first time, John 3, verses 1 through 6, in Portuguese, and 10 questions about those, those sentences 
those sentences. And so we started studying it and we went through the whole thing. And when we got done, I said, now, Tarek, did you learn Portuguese today? He said, oh man, this was great. This is excellent. So the next week we met again and we studied John chapter three, verse seven through verse 16. And we had another 10 questions about that, all in Portuguese. And well, this has been going on since April of this year, my daughter and I studying the Bible with him, but teaching Portuguese at the same time. But about two, two and a half months ago, Tarek got interested in what church we go to. And he said, uh, could I go to church with you? I didn't even ask, have to ask him. I said, sure, we'll pick you up on Sunday. So he has now been attending church, our college class and our services for the last uh, two and a half months. And I believe that God is working in his life. I believe that the Lord is beginning to challenge him about his faith and his need for salvation. We asked him one time if he, if he knew that he was going to go to heaven if he died. And he said, you know, I really don't know that. But he said, I'm getting there. <laughs> and so the Lord is working in his life. And then the next, the next slide, if you'll notice on the left-hand side, if you've read any of our, our updates, this fella is from Cameroon, Africa. His name is Dorian. And I met him at a tire shop um, where I get my tires fixed. And that's a used tire shop. And when I went in, I went to this tire shop purposely because the man who owns it is from Nigeria. And I had invited him to church a couple different times and he came to church with us. But I went back to see my friend. My friend's name is Sunday because he was born on Sunday. That's what his mother named him. Uh, he has 27 siblings, and, um, but he lives in America and he owns God Bless America tires, used tires. So I would go see him and well, I went back to see my friend Sunday. And when I got there, Dorian's there changing a tire and he hears me talking to Sunday about church. And he looks up and he goes, you go to church somewhere? And I said, yes. He goes, I've been looking for a church. And I said, well, you want to go with me? He said, yes. Can I go this Sunday? I said, sure I can. I'll pick you up. So Dorian started going to church with us last fall. And uh, before long, I asked him if he wanted to study God's word together. So we would meet at McDonald's and we'd start studying the book of John together. And in January of this year, Dorian gave his life to Christ. It's, it's an amazing story. I don't have time, but he and his sister flew from Cameroon, Africa to Peru, South America, and Ecuador, Ecuador, South America, and barely got out of the, the airport because they didn't want to let them after three days, and he begged to be able to be released to go into Ecuador, and they finally allowed him to leave the airport. And he and his sister on the next day got together with 200 people. And for the next eight months, they walked to the United States. They saw death. They saw horrific, horrific problems on the way. People being raped, being stolen from, murdered, people dying, crossing rivers, drowning, they walked through a 200-foot tunnel from Mexico into the United States. They came to America. His mother lived here. 
She was married to an American, but the United States would not give him the permission. But he was here, and he was curious about God. And it was interesting how God used a tire shop to allow him to meet our family. And he's been a good friend and been growing in his faith. Would you pray for Dorian? Dorian's going through some real difficult times right now. And uh, he, needs, he needs the prayer of other believers in Christ. This last picture is uh, of a couple that our family has been discipling over the last year. This is Alan, Jane, and their daughter, Nicole. Alan and Jane grew up. Um, he was born in Cuba. His parents migrated to the United States when he was a child. And Jane is from Colombia, South America. They lived in Miami, grew up there. They were both police officers in the Miami-Dade County. And they became detectives. And then they became investigators. And based on some investigation they did, they were beginning to get some threats and so they had to move from the Miami-Dade area. They moved to Greenville, South Carolina. They were solidly uh, very involved in their church, the Catholic Church, and very sincere, faithful, um, faithfully involved in doing quite a few things. But they would go to their priest in the Miami area and ask questions. And every time they asked questions, the priest really couldn't come up with a good, solid answer. And they went back to the priest and asked more questions. And eventually the priest looked at them and said, look, we, you just need to trust that the priest understands God's word and you just need to submit yourself to that. That really didn't set well. When they left the, the Miami area, they came to the Greenville area and they joined Prince of Peace Catholic Church. And again, faithfully going, participating, um, doing many things in the Catholic Church. They began to know the, the priest of their, of their diocese, and they went to him and asked these questions. And again, the same thing happened where they were not getting answers. And so he began, he was encouraged by someone in the police department in Miami to listen to an online preacher, and he began to listen to John MacArthur for a period of time. He basically did it to kind of get his friend off his back, but he really enjoyed what he heard. So he continued to listen to these messages. Then he started to listen to other people. And one day he was at work in Greenville, downtown Greenville. And on his lunch break, he pulled up his phone and he typed in Baptist Church sermons. And Faith Baptist Church and Taylor's came up. And during his break, he listened to the entire message of our pastor. And he was astounded. Every question that he and his wife had was, was answered in that message. He immediately sent the message to his wife at home, said, you need to listen to this, and we're going to go to this church on Sunday. She listened to the message online. She got in her car, drove to our church, asked to see the priest, and said, we would like to set up a meeting on the next day with you. When her husband got home, he said, did you listen to that message? She said, yes, I did. She said, well, we're going to go to that church this Sunday. She said, well, actually, we're meeting with the pastor tomorrow morning. He said, what? <laughs> so the next morning, they went to the, the church. The pastor answered all of their questions, opened up the Bible. He said the greatest thing, the greatest thing was every time he'd open the Bible, he'd turn it around and he put it right in front of us and had of us read the passage right there. And the answer was right there. 
He said, we found the answers in the Bible. And he said, why wouldn't you believe? Well, then the pastor shared the gospel with him. And on that day, Jane and Alan were saved. They came to Christ, accepted him as their savior. About two weeks later, I met them in church and I asked Alan, I said, do you have anybody doing a Bible study with you? And he said, no. I said, well, how would you like to come to our house and we could study the Bible together every week? So Alan and Jane came to our house, but their daughter, Nicole, had not accepted Christ. So while we were studying with Alan and Jane, our son, Andrew, and our daughter, Anna Shea, were in the garage studying the book of John with their daughter, Nicole. And this went on for about two months. And after two months, Nicole gave her life to Christ. And so we have been discipling this family over the last year. And we're soon to go into our next book of discipleship with this family. Recently, Nicole was, her mother had to give her a little bit of warning because she has a friend at school that she's been sharing Christ with this friend. And this friend said to Nicole, I, I just need for you to stop. <laughs> you, you can't talk to me about God anymore. She said, why not? She said, because that's all you talk about. <laughs> You only talk about God and you only talk about being saved. And it's, it's a joy to see that what Christ did in their heart, it is being played out in their lives. You know, there's nothing in the world like investing your life in the life of somebody else. To, to allow the word of God to not only change you, but to change someone that you're working with. You know, every time I study the word of God, and I'm able to have a discipleship with somebody, it is a reaffirming um, part of my life. I am so thankful that I get to share my salvation many times. I'm thankful that I get to talk about my Lord with other people and share what he's done for me and how he's changed my life. Um, I am so grateful for all of the discipleships that we're doing right now, the evangelistic Bible studies that we're doing right now. God has just opened a door on the, on the college campus as well as in other areas. And if you noticed, we, we try and involve our children. We, we don't just do it for my wife and I. We want our children involved in the reaching of people as well as the discipling of people to help them see that this ought to be a lifelong desire that they have to reach people with the gospel of Christ. So we are grateful for God's leading in our life. As I mentioned to the men earlier, I had no expectation I did not know that God was going to change our path. When we left Brazil in 2020, we knew that God was taking us away from the city of Sorocaba, but we had figured that God would lead us to another location, to another place to start another church. And it was during that first year of our furlough that God began to work in our lives through a missions conference that we were involved in, and someone came to speak about the need to reach students on the secular campuses in our country. Do you realize that there are 20 million students in over 4,000 colleges in the United States? 20 million students being taught. 
And you saw the statistics of when believers go, 75% of them leave their faith by the end of their, their final year. And so it's our desire to help them to continue in their faith. This is the next generation that will lead our, our country, our people, toward or away from Christianity. So you pray with us that God will use my family as well as the lives of others to help these college students to live for Christ and that we'll be able to reach others. If you'll turn your Bible very quickly, <clears throat> we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, <clears throat> that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. There are over 200 references to the word light in the Bible. 95 of those are in the New Testament. 16 of them alone are in the Gospel of John. God was wanting to emphasize the light of the world. If you fast forward to this from, from the book of Genesis, where the Bible says that God created light to be separate from the darkness, and you go into the New Testament, you have got a self-declaration in the book of John that, that, that Christ proclaims himself as various things. We call them the I am's. He calls himself the bread of life. He calls himself the door, the resurrection and the life. But there's one that he calls himself that we share, and it's the only one of the I am's that we share with Christ. Christ said that I am the light of the world. He said in John chapter 5, after he heals a, a, a man born blind, and, and he makes an interesting statement right before he heals him. He says in, 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 in this chapter of John, chapter 9, verse 5, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But in Matthew chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Ye are the light of the world. Out of all of the I am's, we were not included in any other part of Christ except for the fact that he called us. He said, as I am in the world, I will be the light of the world. But then in Matthew chapter 5, he says, ye are the light of the world. The one I am that we share with Christ. Christ was trying to emphasize something here. That you and I become a light to a world filled with darkness. God wants us to be a light in the midst of darkness. So what is our job then? What is the description of what God wants us to do? What function do we have as lights in darkness? Well, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, chapter 5, verse 14, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. What is it that, that we should be doing? What is the function of believers today? The Bible says that we have the power to awaken. Our lives shine as light. We can alert others to their sleeping condition. The Bible also says that we can alert the lost to their darkened condition. 
You know, the Bible says that we live in a crooked, perverse nation. I'm looking at some people that came from other generations. Generations that seem to be more just, more right. Am I right about that? There's some of you here today that could not imagine what is happening today to have ever taken place during the time that you were a child. So you can clearly understand what it means by a crooked and perverse generation of people. The Bible says that we can alert those to their sleeping condition. We can alert them to their darkened condition. We can sound the alarm of the power of Satan and the power of sin. Our world is in the grasp of the enemy. The Bible says in Acts chapter 26, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. For what purpose? That they may know and receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance amongst them which are sanctified by the faith that is in me. That's the light that we are. We have the power to awaken through the life that we live, through the voice that we have, so that others might know. You know, we're, at, we're, in, we're in the midst of a, a football season. Just the other day, I was wearing my Chicago Bears shirt. Um, and I was walking through. We were having a walk with some of our Furman students at, in Paris Mountain. And a guy's on a tractor, and he's got his uniform on, and he is a, uh, a forest preserve uh, what do they call them? Yeah, that's what they call them. And, uh, and he turns off his tractor. He goes, Chicago Bears. And I said, yeah, well, I, I, I guess I could be proud of them. <laughs> and he goes, I'm from the east side of Chicago or the west side of Chicago. And I said, well, great. So we started talking back and forth and, uh, and you know, found some common ground. Well, before long, I said, so what are you doing here? He said, well, down here, I had a good job, so I decided to come here. been living here for 17 years. And I said, well, you go to church anywhere? He goes, well, we used to go to church for a little while, but we kind of stopped that thing. So I pulled out of my wallet the little thing that I have from our church and handed it to him. And I said, you know, I said, we need some more Chicago people in our, our church. Why don't you come by? And he said, I just might do that. You know, in the football season, before they begin the play, Everybody gets into a huddle. And something in that huddle is there's a decision made as to what's going to be happening in the play. But I have a question for you. What if by chance they stayed in the huddle? And the refs are looking at the watch and the time is running out and they stayed in the huddle. And ref blows the thing, five-yard penalty. Okay, let's all huddle up again. And they get in their huddle. And they huddle again. And before long, they're, they're not coming out of their huddle. Time goes out, and before long, they get a five-yard penalty again. And they keep doing that. The whole idea would be fans would be yelling and screaming. The coach would be going crazy. 
because they need to get out of the huddle to make the play. You know, I believe that that's exactly what Christians often do. We stay in the huddle. You know, this morning, we're in the huddle. A little bit earlier, we were in the Sunday school huddle. We're learning God's word. We're growing in our faith. We're, we're learning what, what helps us to do what's right. We're making, by making good choices. And, and we're being taught God's word. We're having fellowship with beliefs. We have all sorts of huddles. But the problem is, too often we stay in the huddle. We don't get out of the huddle to begin the play, to get started, to get going, to awaken people from their, their, their sleepiness and their, their darkness that they've chosen to live in. You know, God wants us to, to begin to live our lives and influence the lives of somebody else. But secondly, our function, our job description, description is that we have the power to attract. You know, I, if any of you have ever lived in the South, most of the houses have a nice big long porch on the front of their house, goes from side to side. Sometimes the porch can stretch all the way around the entire house. And it was always a place of welcome. Neighbors would come by, they'd come sit on your porch. They'd drink a cup of coffee or have a cup of tea or drink a Coke. Porch was kind of a welcoming area that everybody came to because it's just what Southerners did, you know? You just go make yourself at home at somebody else's porch and you sit and talk. My wife grew up sitting on the porch with her grandma, talking to people, rocking on a rocking chair. You know, that's exactly what the Word of God is talking about. It ought to be a welcoming approach. Come on and sit on the porch with me. Let's turn on the porch light at night so people will come by. We ought to be able to be the type of people that we attract them to our Savior. Recently, I was at a store and I, I looked at somebody and they said, how are you? I asked them, I said, how are you doing? They said, I'm doing good. And they said, well, well, how are you doing? And I said, you know, I'm doing better than I deserve. And the person looked at me and said, why would you say that? And I said, well, the truth is, I know what I deserve. They said, well, what do you mean by that? You, you, you're probably a good person. You know, you've, you've done good. You're talking to me. And, and we got to talking for a little while. And before long, they're saying, you know, you're a really good person. And I said, you know, if you see any good in me, it's God. And if you see any bad in me, it's me. And the person looked at me and said, really? And I said, that's exactly the way we ought to shine as lights. We ought to have a welcoming, the power to attract people to the Savior that we love. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, Ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel but on a candlestick and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. It's kind of like sitting on the porch, inviting people over and making them, making Jesus look attractive.
Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. My life, your life, should make God and his gospel attractive, beautiful, and desirable. People ought to look at you and see the way you live, the way you respond, the way you talk, the joy that you have in your heart, how you converse with them. They ought to see there's something about them that is attractive. And you look at them and you say, it's Jesus. It's my Savior. He changed me. He's become the light, the light in my life. The Bible says, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Christ said, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. How is it going to appear to all men now? How is it that everyone is going to see Christ? It's because we now are the light of the world. Your life needs to make Christ attractive and desirable. That people would want to see him and invite him into their lives. So I ask you this morning, is your life one that is awakening others to their need of Christ? That they're on the road of destruction that they live in a, a crooked and perverse nation, and you are that light that alerts them to the darkness that they live in? Are you sounding the alarm of the power of sin and the power of Satan? And secondly, are you one that attracts people to Christ? He becomes desirable. He becomes something that people want because they see you. The Bible says in Titus chapter 2, and we'll close with this, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Something beautiful, something to be desired. They adorn the doctrine. Their life is one that when somebody sees it, they say, I want what you have. There's joy. There's peace. And I need what you have. Are you adorning the doctrine of God? Christ calls all of us to be a light in the world that is full of darkness. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning that we can look to your word to be encouraged. But Lord, we also find great challenges. Challenges that ask us to change, to be courageous, to live out our life in a way that others can see that there is light, there is hope, to make Christ desirable and attractive to the world that is full of darkness and sin. Lord, they're held captive. And you can bring freedom.
Help us, Lord, to be that light. Help us to shine. Lord, help us to invite others to know the Christ that we have known. We ask this all in your Son's precious name. Amen.